Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today we are talking with Dr. Laura Borgelt. Dr. Borgelt is Associate Vice Chancellor for Strategic Initiatives for the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Borgelt and her co-authors, Julie Guerin, Alexandra Engelman, and Mina Matamana, contributed a systematic review to pharmacotherapy addressing an important issue titled Use of Hormonal Contraceptives in Perimenopause. Laura, thank you for this timely review and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, let's begin uh, and go through some questions about your your review. I think all readers understand that a major use of hormonal contraceptives is to prevent unintended pregnancy. Your review provides insight on another use to manage perimenopausal symptoms. So can we begin with a brief explanation of the perimenopausal portion of the life cycle and what kinds of symptoms may benefit from management with drug therapy? Sure. Well, perimenopause actually means around menopause and is also called the perimenopausal transition. It really refers to the time a woman's body is transitioning from reproductive to non-reproductive life and then into menopause. And this typically is a time period of about four to eight years Women can start this transition at different ages, and every woman can have a different experience in perimenopause. Now, most women may notice signs in their 40s. Some can have these symptoms in their 30s. But typically, the signs and symptoms can be many, many across this lifespan time. Things such as menstrual irregularity, hot flashes, sleep problems, mood changes, and vaginal dryness can occur during perimenopause. And we do have a variety of drug therapies, but especially hormonal therapies that can be very effective in helping women manage these very bothersome symptoms. Thank you. I understand from your review that these symptoms can lead many women to falsely believe that they can no longer become pregnant. So for women in this situation, how does hormonal contraceptives, I'm assuming they have uh, dual benefits? Well, when women are in perimenopause, their menstrual cycles or menstrual periods can change pretty significantly. The menstrual cycles can lengthen or shorten. They may have bleeding for longer or shorter periods of time or spotting. So it can make a woman more vulnerable to a perception that they can't get pregnant, especially if their menstrual cycles are occurring further and further apart. Now, ovulation can still occur if they are having their periods. And it really isn't until a woman has experienced 12 consecutive months without a menstrual period that they have officially reached menopause. And at that point then, the perimenopause is over. So for women using hormonal contraceptives, it can help them, especially with some of these signs and symptoms of bleeding that we were just talking about, but can also help them prevent pregnancy during this time frame. 
Laura, are there contraindications or specific precautions that should be considered about the use of hormonal contraceptives during this perimenopausal period? Yes, and especially in this particular patient population. Now, the U.S. medical eligibility criteria, which comes from, is published from the CDC, can really help to guide us in potential conditions where women may have contraindications to using various types of hormonal contraceptives. For women going through perimenopause during this time in life, the use of combined hormonal contraceptives, which have both estrogen and progestin, may have more risk. So for example, these combined contraceptives are contraindicated in women who have current breast cancer or severe hypertension or who may smoke uh, at least 15 cigarettes or more per day. So we have other options as well, such as a levonorgestrel IUD, which is a progestin-only contraceptive, does not have estrogen, and may have fewer contraindications, and for that reason may be a preferred method of contraception for this population. Mm. Uh, Thank you for covering those options. About your systematic review of the literature, I know you uh, retrieved a large number of articles from the uh, biomedical literature but really narrowed it down to 15 acceptable studies that were mostly prospective that had sufficient rigor to address your topic, and the topic being evaluating the improvement in perimenopausal symptoms and or long-term outcomes, such as bone loss. Could you just summarize how effective these treatments appear to be from the evidence in the literature you collated? I'll start maybe just with those shorter-term symptoms, then we'll get to the long-term outcomes. Uh, We looked at nine studies that evaluated the resolution of symptoms with the use of these hormonal contraceptives. And when I talk about symptoms, what was really evaluated was things like vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes, psychological symptoms, sexual symptoms, and some what we call somatic symptoms. Now, somatic symptoms in perimenopausal women are symptoms like headaches and fatigue, maybe muscle joints or muscle and joint pains, uh, feeling dizzy, having some numbness, things like that. And in this uh, deep dive, we had five studies that evaluated the resolution of hot flashes with hormonal contraceptives. And there was an 84 to 86% improvement in these symptoms for women that used this a somewhat unique combination of a levonorgestrel IUD with conjugated equine estrogens. And these types of estrogens are typically used for menopausal hormone therapy, not necessarily contraception, but we get the contraception with the levonorgestrel IUD. Some of the other studies found that combined contraceptives, both the estrogen and progestin, could help women with some of their somatic symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and depression symptoms, as well as sexual dysfunction. Now, the last kind of short-term symptom I would just like to mention is vaginal bleeding. And while that can be improved with the combined contraceptives, the most significant improvement is actually seen with the use of the levonorgestrel IUD when given with or without that equine estrogen. And so these are symptoms where it really becomes important for a provider, especially a pharmacist who may be working in this space to really determine what is the most bothersome symptom or symptoms for a woman going through perimenopause. And they can really cater that 
treatment regimen for that person's most bothersome symptoms. Now, regarding long-term outcomes, we looked at four studies measuring changes in cholesterol. There were no significant changes there. We also had studies that looked at body composition. And to be honest, there was kind of a conflict in the data there. Uh, Some attributed some weight gain, others did not have weight gain. There was also conflicting data about blood pressure. And so that can sometimes be a concern as well, but again, wasn't wasn't as robust in the literature, I would say, and had mixed review. When we look at things like bone mineral density, that was also evaluated in three studies that we evaluated. And keep in mind that these studies were shorter term. So many of these studies were looking at other markers of bone mineral density besides the actual DEXA scan. Most of these studies did find statistically significant improvement in bone mineral density or their markers. And so that would be another long-term benefit. Hopefully that helped answer your question for both of those aspects of short and long-term. Oh, absolutely. I think what you've highlighted is this is not a simple issue that there are choices involved in the selection of hormonal treatment. And as well, that it's very important that the provider uh, knows what the symptom profile is uh, with each patient. I'm impressed by your comment that the improvement sometimes um, was recorded as high as uh, 80% or or greater. What also comes to mind as a follow-up question is, you know, what about long-term? Are there any other long-term adverse events that uh, women should be concerned about? This is a great question that ties back to um, the question you'd asked earlier about precautions or contraindications. And, you know, we have data in a variety of populations, but we we recognize that as women get older, their risk for things like breast cancer increases. And certainly the continued use of potent estrogen therapy, as an example, adds to that risk. And so it's important, I think, and it's somewhat of a challenge for practitioners to really address when is the appropriate time to stop using these types of hormone therapies or shifting to a lower risk hormone therapy, if we want to put it that way. And so um, in the case of a levonorgestrel IUD, for example, most of our progestin-only IUDs uh, are effective up to five to seven years. And so ideally... Uh, we would be removing the progestin-only IUD around the age of 51, which is the average age of menopause, maybe a couple years later, maybe a couple years earlier, depending upon when that IUD time, quote, runs out. (laughs) And you can decide if another one should be inserted or not. In the case of combined hormonal contraceptives, which can be higher risk as women get older, we would want to shift them to a menopausal hormone therapy around the age of 51 as well. That's kind of just expert opinion and guidance from our national organizations. And this is something that I think could be further evaluated uh, to determine when that exactly that, you know, kind of right time would be. But given that the average time for this transition to occur between perimenopause and menopause is around 51 years of age, we typically will see discontinuation of these hormonal contraceptives at that time. I think you, you've answered uh, the, the question I was, I was going to follow up, and that is that 
there seems to be a, a number of approaches to application or administration of hormonal contraceptives, and, and you've talked about the various com- components of it. I guess I can ask it this way. Are there guidelines from authoritative mm-hmm. organizations, prescribing guidelines, um, that might indicate a preferred treatment for patients with certain phenotypes, uh, that is, I mean, specific characteristics or needs? Well, I think there isn't a, a really specific perimenopausal guideline when it comes to a national organization or organizations coming around perimenopause specifically. There is NAMS, which is our National Menopause Society. They do have some information about this transition, but they have focused primarily in the menopause space and less so in the perimenopause space. In our study, really the preferred treatment that kind of emerged when you take a look at the all of the symptoms as a whole really became the levonorgestrel IUD with conjugated equine estrogen or ethanyl estradiol, um, which is, again, that menopause hormone therapy dose of estrogen. And I think what we're seeing clinically is a trend towards that as well. So women are not exposed to combine hormonal contraceptives for as long as a t- of a time as maybe we did in the past. And so this levonorgestrel IUD with a conjugated equine estrogen has become maybe more the preferred treatment when possible based on, again, the specific characteristics or needs of the patient. You've alluded to this issue already about how long is the preferred duration of treatment? Is it complete until perimenopausal period is over, or is there any advantage in stopping hormonal contraceptive treatment uh, before that point in time? This is is such a great question because it can vary uh, from woman to woman, which makes it somewhat challenging. And when we reviewed these studies, it really was a span of just a few cycles, in some cases, you know, three to six months, and in other cases, a year. I think we had a couple that went up to two years. But as I mentioned earlier, this span of time in a woman's life can be anywhere typically from four to eight years. And certainly our studies did not follow these patients for that four to eight year period. And that is certainly a limitation of the current literature in this space that we evaluated. And so uh, when we talk about duration of treatment, I like to think of it in kind of like a timeline fashion where It's going to be a shift of treatment from maybe combined hormonal contraceptives or maybe using an IUD for a time and then adding on a menopause therapy and then weaning off the contraceptive and going then to the menopause treatment. And so there's this shifting that occurs. And so that total duration could be, you know, anywhere from two to 10 years, quite honestly, Uh, depending upon how the patient is presenting and what their symptoms are. I have a question that's a little bit off of the content of your review, but just as a comment, uh, we know that pharmacists are becoming increasingly able to make uh, evaluations and dispense drugs like oral contraceptives uh, apart from a medical practitioner's office. Do you feel that this is an area in which pharmacists are likely 
in the future to have uh, more discretion about dispensing uh, hormonal contraceptives? We are seeing uh, some states actually here in Colorado, we have pharmacist involvement in the dispensing of contraception. And I actually see this as a really great opportunity for pharmacists to engage outside and into this perimenopausal phase of life. And so often we think of pharmacists interacting in this space for women that are in their you know, teens, 20s, and 30s. But really, this type of opportunity gives pharmacists the opportunity to engage with them through their 30s and 40s, and maybe even into their 50s, to help them make decisions about appropriate contraceptive care, and when it is appropriate to stop using these types of medications and go to more menopause therapies. Well, you certainly hit on one of the core values of your uh, review of therapeutics, and that is, this is not just a, a simple area, but it really does require uh, knowledge of the background and some of the subtleties about the effects and uh, choice of uh, these medications. I think like most uh, areas that are um, uh, progressive and dynamic in research, this area is probably one that uh, could benefit from additional research. And I would just like to conclude and uh, give you an opportunity to make any uh, comments about other populations that maybe have uh, not been thoroughly studied. The one that comes to mind is transgender women with a female reproductive system or any other populations that uh, might benefit from consideration of uh, hormonal contraceptives. I really appreciate you asking that question, Lindsay. And I do think that transgender care is an emerging area where we will continue to learn more. None of the studies that we evaluated specifically looked at transgender men with female reproductive systems, but I do think that this is an area that we will, we should continue to research, investigate, and publish as we learn more about the best care uh, for uh, transgender people. The other thing that I think is important and is an emerging area as well, and this gets back to kind of that very specific patient interaction is when we look at the experience of women as they go through perimenopause, it can be very different based on their race and ethnicity. And so I think taking a deeper dive into the diverse mix of women in this experience, and I'll just maybe take one example. When we look at this transition of reproductive to non-reproductive life, and this is very, this is a general statement for Black women or white women, this transition can sometimes feel like a celebration as they go from being, you know, reproductive to non-reproductive. There's a freedom that's experienced there. But when we look at our group like the Latina population, as an example, that can be felt as a very deep loss. And because of that, I really think it's important for us to continue to explore this further in terms of the experience that these women are having, and then how we can best offer them treatments that can be most helpful for the way that they are experiencing perimenopause. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to just add a little bit of where I think we can go a bit further and perhaps a bit deeper into this understudied area throughout this menopausal transition. 
your your comments um, reflect that sometimes our assumptions um, about diversity and different cultural based uh, attitudes toward pharmacotherapy may be different than what what we assume. And another one is that certainly adherence is likely to be an issue in this area <clears throat> as it is in so many others. But I would encourage the the listeners today to access your review of therapeutics and pharmacotherapy. Many of the uh, references that you made are in the tables uh, in your article. And so I want to thank you uh, for a very informative overall discussion today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity.